time we stop spreading fear and acknowledge some facts. This is not about freedom or personal choice. You know, you can't work anymore unless you do what I say. That's essentially what a vaccine passport is. Wear masks obviously is a violation of your personal rights, and so is being locked down. You've been patient. Your patience is wearing thin. Open society back up. Restore our freedoms. End this madness. G'day, I'm George Christensen, and welcome to the new series of Conservative One, Conservative One Pandemic Unmasked. And in this series, we're going to be lifting the veil on this pandemic caused by a virus, COVID-19, developed in a Chinese Communist Party lab. And what we find underneath that veil is some very, very scary stuff indeed. Uh, government overreach, uh, abuse of, of, of government power. Uh, we see personal liberties and freedoms just being removed. Uh, we see vaccine mandates and people that are forced out of jobs uh, because of uh, government overreach. Uh, we see media bias, inherent media bias. Uh, we see censorship of dissenting voices. Uh, we see multinational corporations, particularly big pharmaceutical companies, profiteering like they never, ever have before. And uh, at the heart of all of this, I believe, is a very, very sinister agenda for control. We're going to be delving into a lot of those issues over the course of this podcast. I'm about to talk to Dr. Peter McCullough. Peter has been one of those uh, great men within the medical fraternity who have been exposing some of the myths and untruths around COVID-19. Uh, the myth that, for instance, asymptomatic people can pass on COVID, uh, the myth that there are no treatments for COVID-19, uh, the myths around vaccine efficacy and the myths around vaccine safety. Uh, all of these things Dr. McCullough is going to expose in part one of a two-part interview. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you very much. Joining us from Dallas, Texas, uh, late at night there, Dr. McCulloch. How are you? Well, thanks for having me. I've been busy with some COVID patients over the weekend. I bet you have. I bet you have. Now, uh, you've had a lot to say about uh, COVID-19 and uh, all the responses to it. Um, but before we get into that, uh, I want to establish your credentials because you're not just uh, any old doctor. Any old uh, you are quite esteemed and you are... Uh, uh, you've also been the editor of a medical journal, as I understand it, as well. So give us your credentials as much as you're able to, Dr. McCulloch. Sure, I'm happy to. So I'm uh, Dr. Peter McCullough. I'm an academic physician in Dallas, Texas. It means about, I spend about half my time in internal medicine and non-invasive cardiology practice, and about half my time as an author and an editor and uh, a researcher. I'm the editor-in-chief of Reviews in Cardiovascular Medicine and the associate editor uh, of American Journal of Cardiology, the longest standing journal in cardiology. And I'm broadly published in uh, medicine. I have over 650 publications in the peer-reviewed literature, over 52 now in the uh, SARS-CoV-2 um, uh, COVID-19 crisis. And um, I uh, um, if the editor of the first textbook on cardiorenal medicine. I've been focusing on heart and kidney disease. And when the pandemic hit, I really turned all my focus on the pandemic and 
obtained original research grants, carried out original research in COVID-19, initially focusing on early treatment. I published the first two seminal papers teaching doctors how to treat COVID-19 early at home uh, with drugs in combination that had a signal of benefit, acceptable safety, uh, in order to reduce the risk of hospitalization and death. And we were quite successful with that, became the first home treatment guide, uh, and started to uh, reduce the fear level across the United States that we could treat COVID-19 at home and not have patients end up in the hospital in large numbers. Our hospitals never overflowed, thank, uh, thankfully, for those uh, advances. And my opinions have been asked for. I uh, published a whole series of opinion editorials in The Hill last year, now started America Out Loud Talk Radio, The McCullough Report. I've testified in the U.S. Senate by request of the U.S. Senate, as well as multiple state senates. And, um, and of interest, most recently, uh, Judge Dowdy in the Sixth Circuit Court of, of the federal court system in the United States relied upon my testimony uh, to overturn the entire so nation's uh, Biden CMS mandates. Now, uh, President Biden has just gone to appellate court and will take the case to the Supreme Court. So my opinions will be weighed at the level of the Supreme Court. Yeah. So before we get into uh, the uh, discussion around treatments and the rest of it, I mean, uh, you've just outlined the fact that um, uh, Joe Biden brought in uh, these nationwide um, uh, mandates, uh, vaccine mandates. Uh, uh, we're going through that in Australia. It's a worldwide thing. There's a lot of irrational and uh, I'm going to say um, quite uh, undemocratic uh, things that are being brought in uh, as, as a response to this pandemic. And um, I know that you've mentioned before the idea that we are going through some sort of uh, mass psychosis, which particularly has gripped the political class and the media elite uh, and th through them is influencing the public. Uh, why do you think there has been so much panic and so much illogical, irrational uh, reaction to uh, to this pandemic? Professor Matthias Desmet at University of Ghent uh, had yeah. proposed this, that there was four conditions that have been met. The first one is that there has been a prolonged period of isolation. The second is that there's been uh, things that we have been withdrawn from our lives. The third is that we have constant, never-ending, free-floating anxiety. In the United States, uh, just two days ago, President Biden said that we're in for a dark and deadly winter for the unvaccinated. The, these types of statements of just this uh, constant free-floating anxiety. And then the fourth, which is the capper, is that there must be a single solution offered by an entity of authority. In the United States, it came from our federal government. And the answer to the pandemic has been absurd. And with mass psychosis, it's the absurdity that basically clinches the diagnosis of a mass psychosis. And so with the provision of the mass vaccination program, it's the absurdity of it. Uh, the idea that of take a vaccine, uh, even if it doesn't particularly cover COVID-19 very well, take another booster, uh, get COVID-19 the illness, uh, don't give any credit for natural immunity, take another vaccine, and just it's just endless. Uh, the same thing would be true for uh, masking. Uh, you know, you have people wearing masks uh, as they're swimming in swimming pools and, and as they're bicycling. There's no limit to the absurdity here. Another example is the preoccupation that it, of hand sanitizer. It's not a hand infection. It's not even spread on the hands. It's actually in the nose. Uh, so this idea of not sanitizing the nose, but sanitizing the hand, there's no limit to the absurdity to the solution. That tells you that we're in a mass psychosis. Now, now, don't start giving people ideas. We'll have people squirting sanitizer up their nose, and we don't want to encourage that. Um, but look, uh, Dr. McCullough, 
uh, I want to get down to uh, the tin tax here. Uh, you, and before we do that, um, we move now into dangerous territory. I mean, if we're not already, um, you know, had this video removed from uh, Facebook and YouTube and all the rest of it, just for saying what we've said already, certainly uh, it's going to be now. And so um, those that want to see the rest of this video, should it remain up on normal platforms, can go and have a look on Rumble or look on Telegram uh, where this will be broadcast. Uh, but... Um, uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. McCullough, you have pointed out some very, very uh, hard truths around this COVID-19 pandemic. And I want to start off where we began the conversation, which was around treatments. Um, tell us, what are the treatments that you have proposed uh, for COVID-19? I, I note you've said that these treatments can actually be done at home quite successfully. Tell us what has been the patient response to these treatments that you've deployed as a medical physician? Well, the only thing that's being censored right now is the truth. So uh, now's some time for the truth. Uh, if this was not truthful, it wouldn't be censored when it comes to COVID-19. So I think this is very important. The listeners have actually identified censorship as a beacon of truthfulness, and then they hotly pursue the information. So this is what we know. We now know in 2021 that it is an infection. SARS-CoV-2 is an infection of the nasal and oral cavities. So we must do oral and nasal virucidal decontamination. So if one is out in, in congregate settings and had exposure, when they get home, they must use a dilute povidone iodine or a dilute hydrogen peroxide solution and actually squirt some of that solution up in the nose, sniff it back, spit it out the mouth, and then gargle in order to decontaminate the nose and the mouth. This is essential. Uh, it prevents COVID-19. And then in the setting of acute infection, uh, the clinical trial done by Chowdhury and colleagues, uh, one of the most impressive clinical trials to date, 606 individuals, randomized 303 in each group, to povidone iodine, a 1% solution. We're talking two teaspoons of 10% betadine, six ounces of water, and then a nasal spray bottle or a bulb syringe, squirt it up the nose, sniff it back, spit it out, gargle. That done every four hours had a dramatic impact on quickly clearing the PCR to negative, dramatically reducing hospitalization and death need for oxygen. Honestly, it was better than a vaccine. And this was done in Bangladesh. And there was some follow-up studies, all consistently positive. Now it's nine studies over 2,000 patients. Bangladesh, a country of 160 million people, crowded conditions, they're down to zero COVID. So we're wow. employing this now in our practice in the United States widely. And it basically is preventing COVID-19 to a large extent. And then in the acute treatment, it's taking what could be a severe illness and making it much more mild. Yeah. Those studies that you mentioned, have they been through the peer review process? Are they published anywhere or uh, what, what's, what's happened with those studies? Because uh, they certainly haven't hit the mainstream media. No, they've definitely met it through the peer review process and they're uh, published. And what I can do is I can provide them uh, to you, uh, uh, you know, in, in a response or just go to America Out Loud Talk Radio, the McCullough Report, and just look up the story that I did. I think it's saying... Keep it, keeping it clean where it counts. That's the name of the story. And we have the Chowdhury uh, uh, paper and protocol and the other supportive studies. There's now been review articles. It turns out that it, almost anything can kill the virus, uh, just like all the different cleansers and hand sanitizers. The problem is cleansing surfaces of your hands doesn't do it because it's, the, the virus is in the air. You breathe it in the nose. Yeah. So we have to use something in the nose. Now, the principles is if it stings, that means it's too strong. And we shouldn't swallow any of these solutions. Povidone iodine is the best, but if 
There was a dilute hydrogen peroxide with a little Lugol's iodine in it. That's fine. Some people use uh, neti pots or a saline washes. If they put a, a few drops of Lugol's iodine in it, it's fine. I learned this from anti-infective dentists and ear, nose, and throat doctors. They say they've been doing this for bacterial sinusitis forever. This is not something new. It's just yeah. incredibly effective against COVID-19, particularly with the Delta variant, which multiplies in the nose at about a thousand times that of prior variants. And what about uh, ivermectin treatments and hydroxychloroquine treatments? Uh, these uh, are treatments which have been uh, largely um, uh, attacked by the mainstream press and I got to say by uh, the mainstream medical fraternity in Australia at least and uh, probably in the United States and elsewhere as well. What's been your experience with uh, treatments that involve either ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine for COVID-19 patients? Well, as we go down the protocol, you know, we start with that oral nasal decontamination. And again, that's relatively new. That's been in my practice now for about six months, but I'm using it every day in clinical practice. You know, the next layer down are things available over the counter. I wanted to cover that first for Australians. Uh, these are things that all the Australians can do in their own home treatment kit. So first thing yeah. is betadine or 10% povidone iodine or hydrogen peroxide or both if you want. And then have in the kit, uh, uh, zinc, 50 milligrams yep. of elemental zinc, vitamin C, 3,000 milligrams, vitamin D3, 5,000 milligrams preventively. Then acutely in treatment, we use 20 uh, international units a day. Um, uh, quercetin or quercetin, 500, yep. yeah, 500 milligrams a day. And then we increase it to twice a day with treatment. And I had something else in there, which is available over the counter. It's called famotidine or pepsid. It's an antacid, antihistamine, but it reduced some viral replication. Uh, and that's 80 milligrams a day. So that would be in that, uh, everything I just finished mentioning so far, all available over the counter. It's all part of the McCullough protocol, which is now copyrighted, uh, not, not by my initiative, by, by one of the big groups that wanted to give me credit. It's very nice of them. And then after that, we're into prescription drugs. But I want people to understand, no single drug is necessary nor sufficient to, to treat COVID-19, meaning we can easily treat COVID-19 without hydroxychloroquine and without ivermectin. And Dr. Chetty in South Africa, Dr. Barentios in South America taught us that. So no matter what is taken away from Australians, it doesn't matter because it's still yeah. treatable. So this would, this would be state of the art. In Australia, if a high-risk senior over age 65, remember COVID really affects seniors. It's not an issue for young people. We're yeah. talking about older people in Australia. Um, we would want to see a monoclonal antibody infusion. Now, do you have those available in Australia? I'm not sure, but I, I, whether they're over the counter or by prescription. But uh, no, these are prescription. Uh, these are infusions. Yeah, these are prescription or they're infusions. Uh, my understanding is they are available, but I'd like some confirmation in Australia. There's three products. One is by Lilly, and it's an IV high tech infusion of bamlanivimab uh, combined with ertesivimab. Uh, the next one is Regeneron. That's the most frequently used one. That's Indomavav and Carisivimab. That's the one that President, former President Trump received. Uh, Governor Greg Abbott in Texas received it after he failed the vaccines about COVID. Podcaster Joe Rogan, I was just on his show, he received that. Quarterback Aaron Rodgers, that's Regeneron. And then the, the third one that's on the market, that's actually the best one, is actually by GlaxoSmithKline. That's called Sochimumab. That one is associated with an 85% reductions in hospitalization wow. and death. I use these monoclonal antibodies every day in my practice. We have infusion centers all over the United States. I hope Australia does, or if they don't, they should get their act together and get antibody infusions 
available for the high-risk Australians who get the vaccine, whether they, uh, whether they fail the vaccine and get sick or they don't take the vaccine. Majority of Australians have taken the vaccine, so they're going to get sick just with COVID-19 anyway. So uh, when they get the monoclonal antibody infusion, it's a game changer. In my view, if we use monoclonal antibodies, then we don't need the next layer of drugs. However, if we don't use monoclonal antibodies, then we use hydroxychloroquine, uh, supported by over 300 studies, ivermectin, supported by over 60 studies, or favipiravir in Russia and Japan and other countries. Now we have two more additions. We have a Pfizer drug called nafapinavir plus ritonavir. It's a protease inhibitor combination, or mulpinavir, which is the Merck um, uh, a drug that's just a polymerase inhibitor. So we have a lot of choices in that antiviral layer of treatment. Uh, we add doxycycline or zithromycin to cover some bacteria. Beyond that, now we're into immunomodulators. So we use inhaled corticosteroids, budesonide, supported uh, by three clinical trials. The STOIC trial showed an 80% reduction in hospitalization with inhaled budesonide. We use um, oral aspirin throughout 325 milligrams, 90 days for that. Oral colchicine, 0.6 milligrams a day, 30 days for that. We use oral steroids. It can be dexamethasone, not such a good choice. Uh, compared to prednisone, which is our standard. We use prednisone uh, typically over the course of a few weeks in a tapering dose. And then high-risk seniors, we use injectable uh, lomoycoid heparin or oral anticoagulants. That's a lot in a bundle, but it takes four to six drugs. We treat high-risk seniors. I've treated people into their 90s. They don't need hospitalization. We use oxygen concentrators at home sometimes if we need it. And I can tell you, I'd rather treat this at home with the full breadth of drugs and instead of having our patients put, be put in isolation. If we have caregivers and other people who are already recovered from COVID, they can easily take care of sick COVID uh, loved ones and not have to worry about, um, about you know, getting infected since they have natural immunity. So uh, you've gone through a range of different uh, uh, methodologies that people can deploy there. I gotta say that everything in Australia is going to be done uh, through a physician unless it's over-the-counter uh, pharmacies. And uh, for uh, anyone from the TGA watching, uh, certainly neither I nor this podcast uh, uh, nor the producers of this podcast are recommending anything. We're just talking to Dr. McCullough about what he has deployed uh, to treat COVID-19. Uh, Dr. McCullough, a lot of these treatments are... Uh, uh, poo-pooed by the media, poo-pooed by doctors. We've got ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine that have both essentially been banned in Australia. Normal GPs and other physicians can no longer access ivermectin for what they call off-label treatments, uh, such as a prophylactic or an actual treatment for COVID-19. In the state that I live in, Queensland, uh, it's actually against the law to prescribe hydroxychloroquine for COVID-19. I think actually there's still a jail term for uh, doctors that do uh, prescribe that. Um, why do you think there's been this overreaction and censorship, demonization of treatments? What, what would be the reason for this by the medical establishment, uh, the political establishment and the media establishment? I can tell you the uh, entities that are really putting severe restrictions on early treatment, all forms of treatment, are the same entities that are wildly promoting mass vaccination. So I think the thing, two things are linked. If people are starved of treatment and are fearful that they can't get any treatment, they're gonna be much more likely to 
uh, take a vaccine. So I think the two things are linked. But but let me just tell you, George, that the bottom line is, uh, you know, if you don't have hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin, you don't need them. Uh, in yeah. fact, you know, we can add in in place. We use uh, uh, Montelukast. We can use cyproheptadine. Uh, there are antiandrogens that one of the mildest forms is called spironolactone. So there's so many ways to treat COVID-19 with oral drugs that no matter what's taken away, we're still successful. Yeah. So, so, so we've reached uh, the sort of zenith in Australia, I would say, of vaccinations. I think that uh, most people who aren't vaccinated in Australia either won't get vaccinated or they'll wait for uh, a sort of traditional protein-based uh, vaccine to hit the market uh, like Novavax or COVAX, which uh, haven't uh, been released in Australia as yet. Um, so so uh, why would this sort of censorship and stifling of treatments continue? Is it about the boosters or is it something else? Yeah, it appears as if vaccination is just not a one-time thing. So people think they do it one time and, you know, they've kind of passed some uh, gate uh, it turns like now it's really a commitment to regular therapy on an every six month or maybe even on an every three month basis. And I think when people start to realize that, wait a minute, it's not just a one time thing and they've got freedom, that it's going to be linked to yet another uh, injection, another injection. I think that's when uh, the interest in this is really going to fall off quickly. And w they shouldn't be have any censorship on treatment uh, because the bottom line is patients vaccinated uh, will just get COVID-19 just, just like the unvaccinated. So there's really no difference. And so they still all need early treatment. You, you've suggested that these vaccines just simply aren't working with new variants. Uh, I got to say that I don't know that they're working against the old variant either. Uh, I read uh, in the last few weeks that, uh, for instance, AstraZeneca, which was uh, widely used in Australia, after about something like four to six months, it's almost uh, non-protective at all. Uh, so tell us about vaccine efficacy from your point of view. Our governments have given us no monthly report on vaccine or safety and efficacy. So our governments really can't make any claim. They actually holding the data, they could uh, easily give us a report, but you know, governments all over the world are not telling their citizens on how the vaccines are working. In fact, the uh, Indian governments in the Supreme Court being sued just because they're just giving no information to the Indian people about this. In the United States, we knew, we didn't know for the longest time if the vaccines were working or not. The first studies on vaccine efficacy started to come in in September, October, and November. And it turns out, even though know, we have randomized data, some observational data that um, exaggerate in effect size. And what I mean by this is that because our agencies tell the vaccinated not to get any more tests, but they tell the unvaccinated to continue to get tests in all kinds of settings, including elective hospitalizations, heart catheterizations, surgeries, et cetera. We have an inordinate amount of testing in the unvaccinated and minimized testing in the vaccinated. So that skews the data to producing false positive cases in the unvaccinated. Having said all that, uh, papers by Self, uh, by 1040, uh, papers by Nordstrom, uh, and colleagues, uh, this is really worldwide, did show the vaccines had some protection against COVID-19, the, the respiratory illness, and then COVID-19 hospitalization. I think these effect sizes are, are exaggerated. Most of the studies ended up at um, about 
um, an effect size, let's say an aggregate of an 85% protection or vaccine efficacy for hospitalization. Um, but, but again, you know, people uh, uh, who were vaccinated simply weren't tested during these hospitalizations, so they had no opportunity to contribute a case. Having said that, the real rubber meets the road when it comes to death in the hospital. And yeah. so the, the data to rely upon are 1040 and colleagues from the IV network, uh, you know, the, the kind of pride of the US government CDC program. And George, what they found is that uh, of those who, um, you know, looked like they really had COVID-19 in the hospital, there was about a 59% uh, relative risk reduction for progression of disease, heading, uh, heading on to a mechanical ventilator. But death uh, for those vaccinated and hospitalized, of which there's plenty of those, uh, it was between six and seven percent, and then um, death for those unvaccinated was between eight and nine percent. So there was roughly, I think, about a two and a half point difference, two and a half point absolute risk reduction. And then the big paper we look at is by Cohn and colleagues from the Veterans Administration. Over seven hundred thousand veterans admitted. They had mortality again. They don't know if the who had exactly had COVID, but they knew who was test positive. So they did find a mortality benefit even for non-COVID uh, deaths in the vaccinated, meaning there's selection bias. Okay, that's an important concept. You know, healthier people select the vaccines. But of those who are COVID positive, those over 65, there was about a 12 point difference between those survival curves after about three or four months after the vaccines. Um, however, under age 65, that the difference between those survival curves is 1%, one. And then the coverage for uh, Moderna, Pfizer, and Johnson & Johnson fell off a cliff in September. A couple of things happened in September. One, it was about a six-month anniversary time from the initial shots that most people took. And the second thing is the full shading in of the Delta variant. And so now with Delta, we actually have no randomized trial showing the vaccine uh, has uh, high efficacy or not. And we have paper after paper showing a failure of the vaccines to adequately cover Delta, the worst performance actually with AstraZeneca and with Pfizer. Remember, Moderna always comes out to be the winner in the analyses because Moderna is 100 micrograms of messenger RNA. Pfizer is only 30 micrograms of messenger RNA. Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca are very similar vaccines. And now in the United States, our government has finally tipped its hat and said Johnson & Johnson is inferior to Pfizer mm. and Moderna. Yeah. yeah. So uh, we've got these um, vaccine mandates now uh, throughout Australia, uh, essentially the vaccine mandates. Basically, if you uh, want to keep a job in certain professions, uh, certainly healthcare, aged care, uh, education, um, but it flows to even uh, bizarre sort of professions like retail and uh, coal mine workers. Uh, uh, you need to have the vaccination in order to keep your job. So, so workplace vaccine mandates are a thing here. Uh, more than that, uh, medical segregation is also a thing in many of our states whereby you can't go and do the normal sort of socialization routines that you were formerly doing. You can't go to sporting events. You can't go to cinemas, theaters, cafes, restaurants, uh, uh, you name it, you can't go to it if you are not vaccinated. Um, but you've just spoken about vaccine efficacy dropping off. But there also is the fact that if you're asymptomatic, uh, it's much more likely than not. I think you say it's definitely the case that you do not have COVID-19. Is that correct? And what's the basis for that statement, Dr. McCullough? Yeah, one of the things that came out with the pandemic early on 
was a, uh, a, an assumption that the virus spread asymptomatically. And what a lot of people don't know is that, you know, that assertion basically was saying it was the first um, microorganism in the history of medicine that spread, spread from asymptomatic person to asymptomatic person. It's never happened in the history of medicine. So that false assumption got out there and it got built into predictive models. Some said that 30 to 50% of spread was from asymptomatic people and it was never proven. It was just a false assumption. Of course, symptomatic people pass the infection. That was, that was known, that's known for all respiratory viruses, but not asymptomatic to asymptomatic. So finally two papers came in one from Cow in China, over 10 million patient, uh, individuals, and one made well that clearly showed that asymptomatic spread doesn't happen. And so that just and debunked the asymptomatic spread, uh, um, uh, you know, theory. So it's really all about symptomatic people. And so that's the reason why masking doesn't work. Because if you put two masks on people asymptomatic, nothing's going to happen. Yeah. Uh, apart from if they're dirty masks, they might end up with some infection. Uh, the... Um... The World Health Organization came out with uh, uh, with a statement around this, I remember, and they quickly tried to uh, to backtrack on it. But is this now a contested idea or is this accepted that asymptomatic people do not spread COVID-19? Well, again, it was a false assumption. It, it, if it was truly asymptomatic, but it'd be the first time in the history of medicine. Do you see what I mean? So this idea yeah. of putting, putting it out there, that the first time in the history of medicine, we have a virus that spreads asymptomatically uh, mm. into people. So it was just never proven. And then yeah, there were yeah. the two studies that actually looked for it. The cow study looked in 10 million Chinese. They found 300 people that were truly asymptomatic and they truly had the virus in the nasal cavity. They proved it by sequencing antigen and PCR testing. And then they carefully studied them. They couldn't pass it to anybody because they were forming you know, immunity to it. And and they basically gave great assurances that even in the rare case that someone actually truly has the virus, they still can't spread it asymptomatically. So that's that's great news. And you know what happened in the end is that it was there wasn't a declaration on that. But you know, in the United States, our football stadiums are open. We're sitting shoulder to shoulder. I just finished at a crowded restaurant tonight. Everyone, there's no mask. People are sitting shoulder to shoulder. They know if you don't have symptoms, you can't spread it. And so what's happened in America is we just pay attention to symptoms. People who have symptoms, they don't go out to credit restaurants. They don't go to football games. And we're just more reasonable about, you know, sheltering when we have symptoms. It's the only time we need to, in a sense, quarantine ourselves is when we have symptoms. Well, Dr. McCullough will join us again in the next episode of Conservative One Pandemic Unmasked, where we're going to talk a lot more about the vaccine. We're going to talk about vaccine adverse events. We're talk, going to talk about deaths attributable to the vaccine and vaccine efficacy. All this stuff that isn't talked about on most other channels, uh, but we're going to be talking about it here on the Conservative One uh, Pandemic Unmasked podcast. Thank you very much for joining us. See you next episode. Conservative One Pandemic Unmasked is hosted by George Christensen, MP. You can find more episodes from this series at goodsource.news forward slash unmasked. This show is produced and published without censorship or paywall by the team at The Good Source, thanks to The Good Source supporters. If you'd like to be part of the solution by helping us produce more truthful content like this each month, head to goodsource.news and click on the support button. 
Make sure to follow George Christensen on Telegram, Getter, Gab, Parler, Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. You can also help us beat the algorithms by giving us five stars and encouraging comments in Apple Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>